Welcome to Green Left uh, Radio and Friday Breakfast. With me in the studio, I have... Um, Jack, my, um, my name is um, Jacob Andwafa. I'm uh, a young Socialist Alliance um, member and i um, here for the first time on the show. So I'm um, a bit nervous, but I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so today we've got a full show. Um, we've got three interviews, one with the Australian Refugee Coordinator, Graham Thorne, from Amnesty International. We are crossing live over to the climate protests in the city. Andrea will be there talking to us. And we also have uh, Melanie Eagle from Hepatitis C. Jacob, do you want to talk about uh, some articles that are featured at the moment? Ah, yeah. So in, um, in the Green Left Weekly right now, um, this article hasn't appeared in the print version, but there's been sort of a recent development in some of the student actions on the Let Them Stay campaign on, on universities, specifically um, at Murdoch University. Previously, there was a photo petition um, at um, February um, 22nd organised by Students for Refugees um, and Resistance Young Social Alliance supported these actions and participated in them at Murdoch University. Um, and it also got the um, support of, like, academics. Um, but what sort of happened after that, after that photo was taken and, you know, spread around on social media is um, they got a bit of, like, backlash from the Murdoch University um, administration who had claimed um, that, you know, the whole let them stay action is not um, in line with the Murdoch University brand um, and <laughs> basically a bunch of like bureaucratic sort of nonsense. But what's quite exciting is there's been a recent development on that is that the Murdoch University's um, acting vice chancellor, Andrew Taggart, actually joined a student at um, a Let Them Stay action yesterday, basically in response to the controversial actions by university um, administration the previous week. Basically, the university then firmed its support for academic freedom and free speech. But one of the sort of complicated things with um, Murdoch University, which would be a source of like future uh, campaigns at the university, is Murdoch University actually rents space to Serco. It's a private sort of company that's you know, um, known for like running immigration detention centres. Wonderful. And it's compliant in um, the human rights abuses that take place within them. Um, the university's ongoing association with Serco is probably going to be a future poet possibly so, so they had a contradiction yeah yeah <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> how they treat um, how the, the attitude towards uh, refugees is just appalling isn't it yeah and like you i was at um an action at broad meadows um detention center recently a visual and you know like you, you could see like all the hired kind of circo guards oh. and and yet yeah, there's enormous public support for refugees yep. at the moment around the world, in fact. People and are doing different things. Yeah, and I think it's quite exciting. Um, the Let Them Stay kind of photo petitions have been coming because it's been sort of like workers from all different sort of orientate fields have been sort of participating in these actions. And uh, over at Resistance Young Social Alliance, we've been sort of like, we've made it sort of a national kind of priority to participate in um, the campaign um, through our OWICs, like... At the market stay yesterday, um, we had like a photo petition um, running around Victorian Union. We, we, we sent it around all the clubs and we got photos with all of them. Um, we got um, all these uh, international student society. Um, fortunately, we got the VU Greens to support it, but we didn't get, we fortu unfortunately didn't ask the Labor 
if there would like um, the Labour students at um, VU if they would like to. Well, the policy wouldn't exactly fit in with that, would it? Yeah, but so however, they did. We did actually get them. Or we did actually um, at Victorian University there was a letter signed by like 125 students and teachers that was pleading with Watts, who's I'm sure the Labour MP for the Federal of Gillibrand. Um, we, um, I'm pretty sure, when that letter I mean was um, being um, thrown around, um, we got actually some Labour people from. Reu to sign on to it, so that's good. Yeah. What other issues are going on? Anything else that you, you're going to talk about? Um, Bernie Sanders and his campaign in the U.S. joining uh, yeah. Australia to the yeah, US. yeah. So what what's happened recently is not many Australians will probably notice, but on Tuesday was quite a significant day. It was considered Super Tuesday. That's right. That's right. And um, that's when at least seven states state go up for voting for like nominations. This of is the, the primaries. As yeah, for the primary. Yeah. yeah, for the primary Congress. And um, fortunately, the results weren't that great for Bernie Sanders, but he did win key support in four key states, which sort of spread across geographically. So there is some hope that, you know, he might be able to sort of win the swing, but Hillary mostly won most of the votes. However... She got seven states. Yeah, but for the mo- but one thing about the results is that she mostly got support. Um, most of her su- the support she got, um, the leading votes were in sort of conservative southern states. Mm. And um, you know, But the blacks and the, and the women voted for her, which is, well, that's what they say, yep. which is interesting. It's and a historical uh, link between the, the Clinton era and... Um, uh, the black voters. Yeah, yeah, there's that, that as well. Yeah, um, and true. also on the Republican front, um, Donald Trump led oh, the votes, and so actually, painful. Uh, in <laughs> fact, it was a, considered a actually historical milestone. Um, the amount of votes he got in the nomination for the states—it's uh, something apparently unprecedented in um, Republican history. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's it's frightening actually. I mean, it's it it, it can be amusing for some people, but it's absolutely frightening. His policies are just staggeringly frightening. He races, he's got links with the Ku Klux Klan people support him. Um, he's got extremely sexist views. Um, you know, he's such a racist in the way he says things about people who are not white. Uh, it's just, it can go on and on and on. He's against migration. Yes, Dennis has joined us. <laughs> you want to say something? Yes, indeed. Well, actually, oh, I just came back from Latin America. That's long. right. The long holiday. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, but I actually saw, um, oh, uh, in, Equ- in Ecuador, the uh, leftist president, Rafael Correa, has a weekly show, as uh, some of you uh, may, may know, where he, where he talks for, for about five hours, non-stop, oh God, yes. <laughs> to the populace. But uh, last week he had a show, and he said something actually quite interesting about Donald Trump and his election. He actually said that Donald Trump may, might actually be one of the best things that could happen to the left in Latin America and around the world. Because he said Truth. that with the, with a president like that, it will, that will be an unprecedented clause for unification. And, uh, and, um, it could strengthen the left, it. actually. It could, exactly. It'll polarize the population, wouldn't it? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. The left in America might come to its fate. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the last uh, you know, the eight years of Obama have really kind of really softened <laughs> this image of America. And, but uh, with, with Donald Trump, not only will the face... Not only will the, will the mask fall off, but they'll, yes. they'll, prob- uh, they'll probably cut, uh, cut out the very, uh, cut out the face and, and, mm. and surgically insert a new one, yeah, a and much it'll scarier sh- one. And tell people exa- what is actually happening, the truth of the matter. Show, show the raw reactionary policies of Absolutely. this guy. You know? And it's not just this guy; it's the it's the uh, well, the policies of the American state of the of Absolutely. the. 
of the well, probably probably showing the worst of the United States, the worst that it has, the worst that the United States has inflicted well upon its own population, will now be uh, sort of known all throughout all throughout the world. Inflicted yeah. around. I think it also exposes the real face of capitalism. Exactly. Well, the U.S. is known as the bastion of capitalism. I think people will start to understand. Mm-hmm. So this yes. is what capitalism all about. <laughs> so exactly. Yes. Yeah, I think, exactly. and with Donald Trump, um, he. The reason why it's probably um, he's gotten such support is because of the general kind of polarization in kind of American society. Like you know that you know some of the reasons that people vote for Donald Trump is um, is that he's honest. Apparently, like he he says things as it is, which is um, he taps into sort of that sort of nas- that kind nationalism. of nationalism, that kind of national identity that you know Americans have been sort of drummed in from like you know birth. And it's kind of it's kind of fascinating that you know the Republican Party, the rest of the Republican Party are all scared of the fact that Donald Trump looks like he's going to he's going to win the primary. Yeah, he, is. Yet, he probably will. Yeah, and well, yes, he probably is. But the, the, the Republicans only have themselves to blame for that happening. That's right. Yeah, they they pretty much created Trump. No, I think they're running scared because he's exposing the true policies of the Republicans. He, they are running, you know, terrified, running scared. Um, because that tells to people, this is really what the Republicans stand for. So they don't want the truth to come out. They've all been covering up. It's a bit like Tony Abbott, you know, mm. um, behaving like a true liberal. And Turnbull comes along and he sort of makes it nice, you know, presents the same thing, but uh, being in, uh, in, in a gentlemanly way. Yeah. But Abbott was just throwing it out there and, and people, mm. you know, were trying to react to it. Yeah. So a similar thing is happening there with the, the, the Trump being... He's honest because he's telling people about really what the Republicans are all about. But the problem is that it's about the Republican Party, not about, not about the people. Because I think the, the, the people who turn to Donald Trump are the ones who are unemployed, economically disadvantaged, homeless. All those people who are taught to believe or the propaganda makes them believe that it's the migrants who are to blame for my unemployment yep. or lack of comfort in, in, in the way I live. And, 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 you know, it's that thinking that he encourages and fans, fans the fire for them. So, well, as you say, the Republicans only have themselves to blame. So, anything else interesting you want to mention? Um, we, um, we could move on to Den- um, interviewing Dennis. Yeah, for Quickly, no, we have, we have an interview before that yep. that I pre-recorded oh, yep. yesterday evening, actually. But I just want to mention about Colonel Pell. He's sort of very high <laughs> in the media. Do either of you have any comment on that? Hmm. Yes, it's a bit like that. <laughs> <laughs> very hard. It's, it's, it's still hard to charge since uh, you know, the, the verdict doesn't seem to be coming in through. For a while, but it, it really feels like you know it's developing at a snail-like pace. Yes. With, this, with uh, you know his te- his testimony. Hmm. Um, I think it's um, it finally finished yesterday, actually. Yeah, the the fourth presentation. But the thing is, it exposes the fact that you know the the Vatican is is actually protecting um, Pearl, and also the cover-up and the lack of responsibility in admission to these things. Um, it's glaring. Everybody can see it. Mm. You know, it's appalling the way the church is behaving or the Catholic church is behaving towards victims 
They all, what they're doing is they're trying to avoid payment. That's what it's compensation of any kind. Yep. But anyway, it's, um, I just, it, just it reveals kind of like the, instit- the inherent kind of institutional problems of the, the Catholic Church and the hierarchy. Which That's is, right. Um, but unfortunately, the, it led to like all this sort of suffering for mm. all those victims. All those people. It's amazing. Okay, now we'll move on to the interview. This is an interview with Dr. Graham Thorne, who's the coordinator for Australia's Refugee for Amnesty International. And he had some interesting things to say about um, the policy and Australia's policy in particular. And you referred to it earlier on, um, Jacob, about the Let Them Stay campaign. So here we go, Graham Thorne. He's Australia's Refugee Coordinator with Amnesty International. Thank you very much for agreeing to talk to 3CR, Graham. It's very kind of you to make the time to talk to us. Now, you have um, put out a media release from Amnesty International, and it's an interesting, perhaps even a harsh one, which I've never seen uh, done before. So you, you are, you're saying that the Australian government has new draconian laws that's implementing against refugees and also um, indigenous people, but I want to focus on the um, refugee um, yeah. issue. Is that okay? Yeah, no, definitely. Mm. I mean, every year Amnesty International does a global view of the human rights situation around the world, and we use that as an opportunity just to raise the profile of of human rights and look back to see, well, what governments uh, did uh, important initiatives to improve human rights and, and where are the countries where we think human rights are failing. And um, obviously what was interesting and disappointing with Australia last year was uh, the fact that it got even more draconian in terms of its approach to refugees and asylum seekers. In a year when we saw record numbers, nearly 60 million people uh, displaced and, and on the move around the world, uh, Australia took extraordinary measures to, to stop uh, people from coming here and to, in fact, undermine uh, systems of international protection. You know, basic principles, the principle known as, as non-reformal, which means you're not allowed to send people back to countries where they face torture or death. And this is something that Australia has abided by uh, for, for decades. And, you know, it, it underpins the Refugee Convention that Australia helped write and was one of the first countries to sign. And yet in 2015, we not only stopped boats, but we took boats directly back to countries like Vietnam where people had fled uh, and you know, it was just a, quite an extraordinary year when you look back uh, at what happened around the world, the mass numbers of people entering into to Western Europe, uh, the continuing outflow from Syria and yet the way Australia spent billions of dollars to detain uh, a few thousand people on remote uh, islands like Nauru and Manus was just extraordinary when you think what that money could have done and, and what Australia could have done proactively with those resources. Mm. But th- this is not unusual, though. You also say that many wealthy countries are doing similar things, shutting their doors to refugees from countries, uh, from war-torn nations, wars that are obviously created and funded and supported by the Western nations. Uh, it, it's a common thing from what your report says. 
Well, the report looks at a number of different countries, and I think what happened in Europe um, in some ways was heartening, but in, in some ways was also very sad. You know, we did see countries uh, open their borders, or you know, countries like Germany um, make very positive noises around protection and the need to protect people, while at the same time other countries like Hungary and now increasingly countries um, in uh, former Yugoslavia, um, Macedonia and others are, are, are putting up fences uh, and actually stopping people. And we listed 30 countries like Australia that refooled people, that sent people back to countries where they were going to face human rights violations. And I think one of the extraordinary things that we saw in this region um, in May last year was the situation facing the Rohingya who had fled um, ongoing persecution in, in Burma uh, had ended up getting trapped on boats that the people smugglers were, were trying to get them to Thailand and Malaysia. They were abandoned by the people smugglers and left out at sea for weeks and weeks and uh, the governments of, of Thailand, Malaysia and Indonesia forcibly pushed those boats back out uh, into the ocean um, where people were, were starving. They were literally dying of thirst. And so, you know, at that time, Australia was asked, will you help and will you do something? And our Prime Minister said, nope, nope, nope. You know, um, that's the sort of lesson that Australia, a country that had signed the Refugee Convention, was selling to a region that traditionally hasn't respected refugee rights and there could have been a, a, an absolute tragedy. I mean, ultimately, thousands of people were rescued and what was amazing was that in Indonesia they were rescued by the fishermen. The fishermen said, sorry, we're not going to leave these people to die out at sea and they were the ones that actually broke the impasse and rescued uh, thousands of, of Rohingya and uh, um, Bangladeshi migrants who were stuck on those boats and brought them to shore. And so, you know, there was those stories of, of individual heroism um, in the face of, of governments that were turning their back on vulnerable people. Um, so, no, Australia was not alone, but Australia certainly could have done more and is certainly not providing the example we would hope for a country that has long held itself up as, as a beacon of, of human rights and human decency. Mm. And the, the other thing about this whole uh, saga is that the successful governments seem to have same policies, whether it's Labour or Liberal, they seem to adopt the same line. Um, you know, do well, you, sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say that was, you know, also really disappointing. Um, in Australia last year, we did see the Labor Party not only having previously reintroduced detention on Nauru and Manus, but also um, at its convention uh, say that it would adopt pushbacks uh, and, and turnbacks, which has been a policy of, of the current government and. One of the things that Amnesty did last year was investigate the case where $32,000 was handed to a crew of um, a boat that was attempting to take 
asylum seekers to to New Zealand, wasn't even trying to take them to Australia, but were intercepted by Australian officials and and um, put on boats that were provided by the Australian government and sent back to Indonesia and you know, with $32,000 to um, try and convince the, the crew to sail them back. And again, we heard this then Australian Prime Minister say they would, by hook or by crook, you know, adopt any measure to, to turn people around. And that was an extraordinary situation where one of the boats ran out of fuel. They had to all get on one small boat in the middle of the ocean and then they they ran ashore on, a, on an island um, in Indonesia and, and had to be rescued. So, you know, again, Australia, rather than saving lives, was, was putting people's lives at risk. Um, and this was a policy that, that the Labor Party said that they would copy, uh, which, you know, it was very disappointing, you know, in a country, again, that should be leading in terms of rescue, not leading in terms of bad practice towards people who are trying to seek protection. Mm. And I guess um, the latest case would be in the, in the uh, situation where baby Asha was in hospital and the medical staff there refused to allow her to be discharged until she could be safely placed in a uh, community, community situation where it was conducive for a child to grow up. So, well, it, yeah, I mean, again, this is where seeing ordinary people, similar to the the Indonesian fishermen, the Afrimache, rescuing people, it's it's ordinary citizens when confronted with a human being that that needs help, have said, actually, no, we're, we're going to provide help, and we're not going to send a, a, a small child back to a a situation where their health can't be protected and where they can't be properly looked after and and really make a stand and and that's you know again the high court decision we've seen this year was very disappointing in that it did give the government the legal right to be able to to take people to Nauru and Manus Island um, but at the same time we've seen a backlash from doctors and lawyers and grandmothers and you know ordinary Australians <laughs> yes. who have you know, said no you know don't send them back you know we're talking about you know up to 80 small children who, who really whose health cannot be properly cared for um, in that environment. Mm. The, I don't know if you can answer this question or not um, the politics of the situation how does Amnesty International analyze the politics behind this sort of policies, not just in Australia, but across the 160 nations you did the, uh, the survey on? Well, you know, the politics is, is, a, is an interesting one, and when you come from a, an organization promoting human rights and there's a convention there that says we should protect people who are fleeing violence and persecution, and yet time after time governments are, are putting up barriers um, so you're seeing sovereignty trump humanity. Um, it's incredibly disappointing. And, and unfortunately, as we've seen in Australia, it's both sides of politics that are really playing to the lowest common denominator. And you know, the US election is, is a, another reflection of that, where mm. we've seen extraordinary statements not only about um, people coming from, from Latin America to work in the US, but about resettling Syrian refugees. You know, one of the greatest 
refugee crisis we've seen in decades and and yet politicians in America are, are saying we don't want them here uh, and trying to stop them from coming to individual states. And the U.S., again, has played a really important role in terms of resettling refugees. Uh, and so for it to suddenly turn around and and play this, this nasty game with some of the world's most vulnerable people is really quite sad. Hmm. It's contradictory, isn't it? The, the U.S. sells enormous amount of arms to people who are at war, and yet they will not take responsibility for the results of that war in the end. But I just was uh, going to ask you one more question before I let you go. Is what, what does Amnesty International do or is able to do in such situations? Um, how do you go about trying to put pressure on uh, governments to correct their ways, so to speak, if you like? Well, we have to take a, a whole range of approaches. You know, when governments uh, have to give uh, evidence at the UN, their universal periodic review, we make sure we're there explaining the facts to ensure that they can't lie about what they're doing in terms of their human rights uh, approaches. We try and raise awareness with uh, the public. We meet politicians. One of the important things that Amnesty can do is research. So I was uh, in Indonesia in, in August last year just to, to meet with the Rohingya that were rescued, and we also met with those that were on the boat that Australia turned around, and we met with a number of others who were on those boats just to to see how they're treated and, and bring that information into the public domain. And, you know, we, we try and make sure that the facts are out there and that we can bring a human face to those facts to, to remind everyone that we are talking about people and, and hopefully through that we can, we can change public opinion and we can change political opinion. Uh, you know, there are reasons why we have conventions. You know, it's not just words on paper. These are are rights that we all hold dear and actually protect us uh, all. And so how do we remind people that they're worth defending and worth protecting? Now, that's, that's what we do, whether it's talking to a school group or, or talking to the foreign minister. Um, we have to make sure that we have the facts right and, and that we just keep pushing and pushing. Hmm. Finally, is there anything listeners can do to support you in this um, cause? Well, I think you know, we've got the, the Let Them Stay campaign going at the moment, particularly for those who are here who've been brought back from Nauru, and we'd urge people to, to look at our website, uh, amnesty.org.au, and, and get involved in that campaign. As I say, this is a campaign that a number of organisations are now involved in. Uh, and, yeah, make yourself aware of the facts. Again, that Amnesty and others are, are getting the facts out there. Have conversations with your friends, with your family, in the taxi, uh, and, you know, remind people that, that Australia can do better and uh, definitely get in touch with your, your local MP. Don't be afraid. He's, he or she is there representing you, so you have a right to talk to them and, and make your views known. Especially in a year where we're expecting elections soon. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you very much, Graham. Very kind of you to make the time to talk to 3CR. Um, mm -hmm. We will um, talk again if other issues arise. Oh, absolutely. Thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you, Graham.
That was Graham Thorne from Amnesty International. Um, certainly exposes the um, hypocrisy of Australia. We'll go to a community announcement. Then we will talk to Dennis, who just returned from Central America. Okay, Dennis, you have just come back from South America. Correction. <laughs> Share with us your experience. You you have spent about three months in three different countries or four different countries. Three different countries. Three different yes. countries. Yeah, so you wanted to talk about Bolivia first. Yes, yes I did. So I was in Bolivia in the last uh, in the last weeks of February and I was there as a Green Left Weekly correspondent observing a very important um, electoral development in the country. I observed the referendum that was held to, uh, to decide whether Evo Morales, the, kind, uh, the current indigenous socialist president of Bolivia, will, uh, would be allowed to have uh, another, another term in, uh, as, as a president, and so that if he would be allowed to stand in the 2020 presidential election in Bolivia. The uh, <clears throat> and just uh, uh, before before I go into more, more details, I wanted to give a bit of a brief background on Bolivia. So uh, the before before 2000 or well, before 2006, Bolivia was ruled by well for decades it was ruled by uh, a number uh, a, a number of uh, neoliberal and conservative uh, governments so that have that have instituted. The same kind of uh, sort of uh, free market neoliberal policies that they've done in uh, the, the, the first engineered in Chile under Pinochet. Mm. So we're talking we're talking about uh, th- we're talking about things like you know uh, the privatization of the utilities like water. Um, we're talking about uh, you know just uh, crushing down on 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 strikes and demonstrations of uh, peasant of peasants and minor and miners. You know we're talking about skyrocketing levels of of, of of poverty and inequality and uh, extreme poverty, uh, we're talking about um, you know the, the, sort of the privatization of you know healthcare, of education, of uh, of um, a whole a whole a whole range of uh, things that uh, you know uh, should be gi- it should it should be given for free at least here. Well, you know it, it, it's that even you know that that deserves to be given for free. Sorry. However, um, it really stopped. It really stopped um, uh, at the mo- uh, with, the, with the election of Evo Morales in 2005. In 2005 was the first time in the history of South America that the that an indigenous president became uh, became the head of government. So. In the last, so in the last, in the last ten years, Bolivia has uh, has really changed, has, has really has really changed beyond, uh, really, really beyond recognition. Because in the la- last ten years, the uh, the height. Uh, sorry, one thing I forgot to mention is that uh, Bolivia, like many countries in South America, is very rich in natural resources. So hydrocarbons, nickel, zinc, a lot of these sort of uh, mineral, uh, a lot of these minerals. And um, during the presidency of Evo Morales, he actually nationalized the hydrocarbon industry. Hmm, uh, very or, brave or at man. Least, or, at least, uh, or at least a big part of it. But he kicked out the, the majority of multinational corporations. And he's uh, one of the first um, indigenous he's the people. First, yes, the first. In yeah. the world, isn't it? No, he's, he's the first indigenous president 
of, of a South American country. Country, yeah. That is correct. Very yeah. revolutionary, yep. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but uh, but he did a whole a whole bunch of other things. Um, so he, in 2009, Bolivia wrote a new constitution which um, recognized the rights of nature. Mm, which is amazing. That. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And also and also he initiated um, a large number of policies to um, to bring gender equality yes. to Bolivia. To Bolivia. Bolivia is one of the very few countries in the world which has a 50-50 percent representation in the in the assembly. Oh right. And has um, you know ex- excellent um, you know health uh, and uh, health facilities and uh, you know um, laws to help achieve uh, gender equality. They actually have 50 percent um, uh, yeah. parliamentarians they as do. women. Fantastic. They do. They do. They do. And uh, last but not, but not least, uh, he increased. Uh, he massively increased by 700 percent spending, uh, social spending in Bolivia. Wow. So <laughs> as opposed so to military spending. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like our country is doing, yes. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so education, healthcare, and um, um, uh, sort of, and and, and um, also financing, uh, you know, for economic projects for the communities mm. there. So poverty has actually dropped from well, just over thirty-eight percent when he got into office to eighteen percent now, and extreme poverty has uh, has has, re- has really dropped to. So, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but it was over 50%. In, wow, in that's great achievement. Just, uh, just around 20 and now. So this recent re- uh, referendum was um, was held to determine... Why was there a referendum held? Can't he, he, there's, the Constitution doesn't, doesn't allow him to stand a second time? That's right. The Bolivian co- Constitution does not allow a second consecutive term. So, right. So you can, be, you can be elected president and you can re-ele- be re-elected, but you cannot seek a third consecutive ah. sorry, a, a, an, an, another consecutive uh, okay. re-election okay. Uh, it's been uh, the refer- referendums of that have been done in other sort of countries in South America um, so the uh, so on the election on the election day itself there was it was basically a yes or a no vote yeah. whether you know whether he should a, or, or shouldn't or, or shouldn't yep. yeah, yeah. O- also, also it extends to his vice president as well Alvaro Garcia Lineda okay uh, to decide whether he, he or not he whether he should or he shouldn't. Um, the um, um, but it's, it's it's important to talk about the background of the of the of the campaigns for yes mm. and no. Mm. The Bolivian right wing has been well, has, uh, was basically shattered completely when Evo Morales came to power and mm. has been basically in that same state in the last ten years. Um, so it has, absol- has had absolutely no. S- uh, it has had very few success in. Uh, uh, well, basically, not just trying to win presidential election, but even just subnational ones. Um, so th- this became sort of a bit of a unifying factor for the many sort of political, uh, for the many right-wing po- opposition, opposition, opposition parties and forces, as well as the, the still, ex- the still quite existent, um, the Bol- uh, Bolivian. Uh, elite, Bolivian yep. economic elite that still very much hates uh, Evo Morales for obvious reasons. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. I can understand that. Yes. So, in a, uh, so in the prelude to the, uh, to, the, uh, to the to the actual referendum, the no campaign ran a very well, it's a very a very dirty campaign, a very dirty media mm. uh, campaign against uh, against Morales. Yep. So uh, the first, uh, w- one of the most bizarre stories that I heard when I, w- when I was there, 
was that uh, apparently Eva Morales got a $200 haircut. Oh. And that was supposed to be, yeah, that was supposed <laughs> to like tatter his humble image of an indigenous woman. It was, it was it pathetic. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah like it was, it, well, the whole story just turned out to be a lie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, second story that actually did a bit, quite a bit more damage was a, was a story of, um, the story was run uh, about a an ex um, ex partner of uh, of Eva Morales, who was um, apparently uh, placed in charge of a uh, well, well, who was employed by a Chinese firm in Bolivia and was given contracts, uh, a um, special contracts by the government, hmm. um, by by Eva by Eva himself, Morales, so yep. as a case of nepotism. Yep. That also turned out to be false, but yeah. it, uh, however, it was a bit, a bit Yeah, it's funny fun. how stories catch fire, That's isn't true. it? Yeah. That's true. And also, um, there's been uh, also on the, the the Bolivian right wing was able to use the social media to great effect. Uh, was able to, was able to use the social media to a great effect mm. in in Bolivia. Um, even Morales, neither even nor his vice president actually have a Facebook or a Twitter account, which <laughs> is actually, which I don't know, which may not be that bad in Australia, in Australia, but in South America that is horrible. Really? Yes, yes, because uh, Twitter uh, Twitter is very popular in Latin America. It's mm. a great way for, uh, for 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 communication. Say, not just. You know, not just for the, um, uh, well, uh, just for, sh- uh, you know, sharing uh, t- sharing tweets and, and, and pictures of Leonardo DiCaprio, but also, oh. but also for communicating, <laughs> also for communicating directly with the population. Right. Hugo Chavez actually had the biggest Twitter account of anybody in right. South America before he passed away. Okay. And he emphasized this need for the revolutionaries, the revolutionary leaders, to have to constantly have a social media presence yeah. and to constantly communicate with the populace using that. Unfortunately, neither Ivo nor 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 Alvaro nor other nor other comrades in um, in the revolutionary in the revolutionary party of um, uh, Bolivia, Bolivia uh, movement towards socialism. They don't ha- they don't have much of a social media presence, mm. and the right was able to use that and greatly expand their campaign influence yep. so in the end in the end when the when the game when uh, the day came for the referendum the yes uh, the no vote won very narrowly mm-hmm. uh, by by uh, 51.3% oh that's very narrow oh and no, gosh. yes and no got it 48.7% yeah so this was a great disappointment. But I was actually curious to see what was happening on the night yep. uh, there. So when I was uh, when I was when I was in the media center, sort of watching the results uh, yep. come in in La Paz, it was inter- interesting to see that um, the first the, the results from the first few hours actually showed the no vote leading by 66 percent, wow. and yes was on th- 33. And the reason for that was because they counted the city vote. First, oh, okay. the, vote, the votes in the urban areas first, right. and then they count in the rural ones. Yes, and the vast majority of uh, Evo support come from the, from come the countryside. Yes, come from the countryside. Yeah. yeah. And also something that's important to mention is that um, I did I did say that the Bolivian right wing has been all shattered and divided for a long time. Yeah. But last year they did score a pretty significant victory in the local elections in in Bolivia. Mm. In uh, last year they did win the 
mayorality right. of, uh, of, of, of a lot of important urban areas like La Paz, Cochabamba, Al Alto, oh. other, uh, and, other, and other cities. So a lot of the urban areas were actually won over by the opposition. Mm. Why was that? Uh, well, Evo, Morales, yeah, Evo himself actually stated that this was because of the growing incompetence and corruption in, within the, the within, within local governments led by Mas. Yes. Yeah. Um, and he so was going to do something about that. Yeah, well, exactly. It's, it's actually he's actually been doing like you know, constantly talking about it. Yep. Ever, ever, ever since then. And. Um, during the during the referendum itself, I was actually curious uh, to see, like, wh- when I was visiting the electoral polling stations and actually talking to people, uh, say yes or no, what I discovered is that a l- uh, quite a few of the no voters, when they told me why they were voting for, for no, they said that um, they did not. They some of them said they wanted to see some fresh faces for the for the next elections, for yeah. someone new to enter. Some of them said that they they didn't want the constitution to be changed for anybody, yeah. no matter who it was. Some of them, uh, some some of them obviously bought into the propaganda and said that you know it was just corrupt. Yeah. But the overwhelming feeling that I got there was that, um, um, oh, was, oh, sorry, sorry, and the yes voters, sorry, the yes voters, said that they wanted to have a chance to to continue the revo- to continue the communitarian revolution in Bolivia, yeah. and to continue the policies of you know radical. Um, of uh, well, radical redistribution to, to the poor and the workers, and 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 because they believe with evil, they had they, they had a future. While well, with a with a neoliberal government, that would just go back to the chaos hmm. of the of of those years. Yeah. Interesting story. Thank you so much. Direct report I mean, of someone who's been there, witnessed the referendum. That's interesting. So we'll go on to the other countries um, uh, maybe next week, In the next, the um, next year, if you get another chance. But thank you so much for that, Dennis. That is it's a lovely story. I was engrossed in that. <laughs> yeah, I, I could talk for a while. For like yes. Or <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. All right. Announcement in terms of upcoming event and rallies. On Tuesday, March 8th, 5.30 at the State Library, there will be International Women's Day. And on that, alternatively also on that day, there will be a public meeting organised by Socialist Alliance titled Why We Need Feminism. It will be start at 12pm VU Footscray Park in room D531. Um, for more info, um, call 0458 Also today, it's happening right now, there is a Brunswick Climate Rally organised by Climate Action Moreland. That the demand is to tell Premier Daniel Andrews that it's time to build renewables and replace Hazelwood with um, focusing to tell him to take action on climate change, energy sources and coal. It's at, now at the corner of of the park Nicholson Street at East Brunswick on the bike path. We have um, Melanie Eagle on the phone. Um, she's the CEO of uh, Hepsi Victoria, and we're going to talk about the latest development in this area. Good morning, Melanie. Good morning. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us. Um, the main reason we wanted to have a chat to you is about the changes that's happened in the treatment for Hepsi, but maybe we should talk about the impact um, of Hep C on people and the population that's, that it has an impact on. So can we, maybe we should start with um, the changes perhaps? Okay, I guess the uh, understanding the impact is uh, an important way to understand what it means uh, to have these new drugs listed on the PBS. So 
Australia-wide, there's about a quarter of a million people who currently live with chronic hepatitis C. Uh, in Victoria, for example, that's about 65,000 people. So we're talking about 1% of the population who are affected. And to date, uh, most of those people aren't engaged in treatment, many because they know, uh, well, they have been made aware of how bad the past treatments have been. They've been long-term with very bad side effects and only about a 35% cure rate, although in the last couple of years the new, new drugs did help and they brought it up to about a 50% cure rate. But basically many people knew they could go on to treatment and even after, say, a year of pretty horrendic, horrendic Horrendous. Horrendous experiences. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Not being able to work uh, really is with both their uh, physical and mental health. Only about half of them would be cured even lately. The change we see now is that uh, the new drugs that have been listed, for virtually all people who take them, there will be a 95% cure rate. That's good. So, Amazing. And... And to go through that process to get cured uh, will only be probably uh, between 8 to 12 weeks of just taking tablets. No longer will people have to have the weekly interferon injections. And those tablets are you know, much reduced side effects and for some people side effects free. And at the end, you're cured, which is uh, actually very, it's really quite unusual. I mean, if you try to can think of other conditions, whether it's, you know, diabetes or epilepsy or other forms of cancer because this uh, hepatitis C is so significant because it can lead to liver cancer. Mm. And most people don't look forward to the prospect of a cure. But uh, here we're talking cure and if enough people can get treated, and that's why it's fantastic to have the opportunity to talk to your audience about it, if people themselves think they might have been at risk, this is our message, or they know of others who might have been, just go and talk to your GP. You might be talking about a, a simple process. You don't even have to tell anyone you're going through treatment. They wouldn't know. It'll be over and done with, and you'd be cured. Mm. That's really, really important, isn't it? Because the population who are affected by Hep C are significant, especially in the prison population and mm. among the Aboriginal community as well. That mm-hmm. is a, a, a huge part of um, the the people who are affected. So this will be an enormous help to to help them get better. And I think so some people don't even know they have it. That's no. the interesting part. And they probably don't even suspect it at all until they go to go for treatment or something. And then somebody accidentally discovers they've got Hep C until it's too late, isn't it? That's right, because it's a chronic condition that doesn't have, it's not like breaking a leg or anything. People will live with it literally for 20, 30 years before they start getting sick enough to actually start having questions and then they'll be diagnosed and then they've already got significant liver damage. So really anybody who thinks they might be at risk, a lot of people who have just perhaps had um, uh, perhaps risky behaviours or even if you're between in America there's a lot of campaigns anybody who's a baby boomer just go and get tested mm. I mean it's uh, like we do a lot of preventative medicine if you think there's a, uh, any chance at all make an inquiry just ask your GP there's tests that they'll uh, order for you uh, and if they find out that uh, you have had exposure to hepatitis C um, they can have it confirmed if that's the case you go on treatment Mm. It's straightforward. It's like we do for many of our other aspects of our health care. Yes, sir. Do your routine tests. 
if you find out it is, here's a solution and it's not a solution to worry about. And uh, nearly, in fact, by doing this, you can contribute to the well-being of the community because if we can get enough people cured, we actually prevent it as an ongoing health condition. We can, we can. this is what uh, some of our kind of exciting language is now, we can talk about eliminating hepatitis C as a health concern in Australia within a generation. That's absolutely revolutionary, isn't it? Um, mm. I, I just thought maybe we could clarify what you mean by risky behaviour. Mm, sure. So uh, it's a blood-borne virus, so it's, it's communicated through uh, blood. So if somebody else is infected, uh, they can expose somebody else to risk, and so it can be transmitted through that other person having contact with the blood. So when you've already got it, as we have in a significant amount in the community, so 1% of the population, that means there's many points of intersection. And we did have a time in the 80s, for example, when it, when it was in, uh, you know, uh, blood transfusions and things because we hadn't identified it. Mm. So actually some people have contracted it uh, there. Some people have had a lot of transfusions like hemophiliacs might have contracted it there. People who have been exposed uh, to poor medical practices, often overseas, um, then they might have contracted it there and not known. For example, in Egypt now, a third of the population has hepatitis, oh, probably through very poor medical practices, mm. just unsafe, uh, unhygienic, you know, infection control. And then once it's in the system, it can be through, you know, mistaken household, you know, a cut exposed to another cut, etc. In um, countries such as Australia, the majority of people actually contracted it uh, through injecting drug use, which wasn't done in a safe manner. So again, we didn't know about the risk and many people contracted it then and now, unfortunately, that's still occurring with young people. So the most, most people get, most new acquisition is through injecting drug use that's done in an unsafe manner, which is, of course, another argument for, you know, clean syringes that's right. uh, that's being right. supplied and things like that. Mm. Uh, but you can also get it from unsafe tattooing practices. Yes. Uh, people perhaps don't realise maybe when they travel overseas too, they, they wouldn't know whether they're going to a registered tattooers or whether they're, you know, who's gone through any type of infection control training, even if you, um, you know, doing pedicures, etc. So it's really all those uh, situations are opportunities for it to be, uh, for, uh, for infected blood to be transmitted to another person. And you don't necessarily know that other person's situation and that you're exposed to risk. Mm. So it's, it's a fairly easy process if, if you think or suspect um, that you may have uh, hep C or maybe exposed to uh, such things, you go to the GP and ask for a test. That's right. And it may not have been anything that you did recently. It could have been literally 20, 30 years ago. Mm. So and that... you, you wouldn't have known about it or thought about it. So mm. why not ask now? Have the test, get the, either the you know security of mind, the peace of mind that it's not an issue for you or alternatively that you can get treated and it's then no longer an issue for you mm. and you're not at, at, you don't have the chance of passing it on to anyone else either. So what prompted this um, change to bring hep C treatment into the PBS fold? Well, actually, Australia was very late. There's already been 120,000 people in the US and the UK treated with these new what we call direct-acting antivirals and cured. 
So we're actually late. Oh, God. <laughs> some, of, some of us have been agitating about this for a long time because, uh, you know, the pharmaceutical companies have done their research, did their clinical trials, found out that we're really talking about another level of treatment and uh, convinced other countries to make it available. So they're in the first world countries. New Zealand's got access, et cetera, already. Um, They've also made it available overseas in poorer countries at discounted rates, so you can get treatment in Egypt and India, etc. I mean, for many people, it's still unaffordable, but it's relatively, really cheap. Mm. So then we get back to uh, Australia. I guess a lot of people campaigned, and I think increasingly they were realising this is the hepatitis, uh, both B and C, and we've only been talking about C here, can cause, as I say, liver cancer. They're not the only cause, but they're the main cause of liver cancer. And liver cancer is the fastest growing cause of cancer death in Australia. So actually the evidence is there that this is a very expensive condition for not only individuals, but for the health system. And so the evidence also supports preventing people from having uh, deterioration of their liver and then being very costly to the health system. So those arguments really, I think, started uh, carrying weight. And also we were finding that people were importing it uh, from overseas. They could get access to it. They were desperate. They were sick. Uh, they were importing it from overseas. And, and you know, I think the health officials started realising they weren't controlling the actual quality, they can't, of what people were importing. So far better for us to make it available here and... Um, really have an impact on our health system in a positive way as well as, um, you know, obviously people's lives. Mm. Well, that's a great achievement and a big relief to many people in Australia. Mm. And thanks to your organisation and all your supporters who have campaigned for this change. Um, that's right. Many, many people have put themselves out to go and talk to politicians and write their, their submissions. Mm. And uh, it's been a very courageous uh, long effort. Yes, yes, and, and a great success. Thank mm. you so much for talking to 3CR, Melanie. Thank um, you for the opportunity. Okay, but, thanks uh, a lot. We've got to get the word out there. Absolutely, that's, that's what this is all about. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Andrea, who's at the Climate Action protest in the city this morning, very early, to chat about what that's all about. I've got Andrea Bunting on the phone from the Climate Action protest, and we shall ask her about what's going on. Morning, Andrea. Hi, yes. I'm down at the corner, near the corner of Nicholson Street and Park Street on the bike path. And what, is, what, what, what is this protest about, Andrea? Well, it's for climate action. It's actually targeting the state government um, to close Hazelwood and build renewables. So there is a series of ten actions uh, near the offices of ten senior state ministers. Uh, we're doing this over the next few weeks, and this is the first one. So we're targeting Jane Garrett, whose office is a little bit up the road. So we're at the moment getting um, uh, bike riders, uh, getting their support, filling in postcards, getting their photos taken with our sign, which we're going to pass over social media today. So keep an eye on our Facebook page, Climate Action Moreland. Okay, but so when, when is the next protest? Oh, that's a good question. Oh, are you, are you sort of uh, going a guerrilla warfare and surprising them? What are you doing? <laughs> okay, so we've got uh, each uh, climate group, um, uh, um, we've got 10 climate groups across the state 
who are organising their own protests. We've kicked off. I actually don't know when the schedule for the next one is, but we've got um, we've got quite a few groups, uh, ten as I say, um, probably mainly in Melbourne, and uh, they'll be doing it outside the offices of uh, state par- uh, state ministers. And then we'll be doing a big rally where we'll all come together. Um, that's probably it's in the lead up to the state budget. So in about six weeks, we'll be having a big rally outside Parliament House. Okay, so how many people have you got around there at the protest at the moment? Well, the people are just coming now because we've, uh, we're, we've, um, starting about 8 o'clock. So we've got about, uh, 20 of us here who are holding banners, um, and handing out leaflets. And what we're doing is we're stopping the cyclists as they go along the path. <laughs> so the idea was to get lots of pictures. Yes. Uh, try and get a bit of media. Oh, look, we've got a politician here. Oh, yes. I think Greg, Greg, Greg Barber has arrived. Excellent. Okay. Hi, Greg. I'm on the radio, live cross. He sends his greetings. Yes, thank you. That's good. So this is in, in, in um, aid of shutting down Hazelwood. Is that the main target? Yeah, yes. Yes. Well, you see, the government has, you know, it's made noises about, about uh, taking action on climate change. But it won't tackle the real thing, which is how do we shut down Victoria's coal industry? Because our brown coal power stations, particularly Hazelwood, as you know, is extremely polluting. Um, and because it's in private hands, the government, you know, says, well, we can't do anything. Now, of course they can. Um, they can, um, for example, set very high performance standards on, on these brown coal generators, which, which they can't meet. So that's in terms of, you know, restricting how much emissions they have. And so that would force them to close down. But the government's attitude is let the market decide. And, of course, the market isn't closing down brown coal. It's actually closing down black coal, interestingly, but not brown coal. So there has to be specific government action to get these dirty power stations off the grid. We do have excess electricity. We don't even need them. We uh, also need a rapid plan to, to roll out renewable energy in the state. And so the government has got its budget coming up. They've really got to be serious rather than doing the normal sort of putting things off or making noises. We do want some serious action. So this is what this protest is about. And this, is, this, protest. this is a protest against the state government, yes? Yes. So yes. we're targeting the state government because we do have a state government that will make noises on saying it wants to do climate action. But we want real climate action. Um, so that means not just renewable energy, which everyone is happy to talk about, but closing down coal, which people, which the government is generally not happy to talk about. So uh, that's really our target. It's got to be close down the, the main polluters. Mm. So what is the um, ALP policy on this official well, policy? Well, you know, they're generally supportive of renewable energy. Um, so... Uh, I think, you know, they may well uh, try and uh, increase the target on that. So um, they've helped, you know, under the previous government there was a, an effective planning ban that stopped wind being developed. Um, so that's been lifted. Um, so we may get more renewables. But the point is you, you can have a renewables target, but we're not going to close, we're not going to stop polluting because 
the brown coal power stations, which are very cheap, are still in the system. So you really got to do it from both ends. You've got to close down the coal and uh, and build renewables because there's a problem. The renewables are not getting built. I mean, you know, because of oversupply in the electricity system, despite the targets. You know, they're talking about the retailers being happy to pay the fine if they don't can't buy enough renewable energy. So we do need to actually close down, you know. And governments don't talk about closing down coal because coal is too, uh, uh, they, you know, they think it's an important asset to the state. Jacob, yeah. Jacob has a question for you. Yeah. What are, um, yeah. in terms, yeah, you're, you're completely right that, you know, we have to not just talk about funding renewables, but actually closing down coal power plants. But I haven't, so is there sort of a demand within sort of climate action moorland and also the climate movement sort of in Melbourne within this process to actually talk, have a discussion about, you know, transitional kind of things, like, you know, turning Hazelwood into say, um, closing down Hazelwood, but also trying to turn that site into a, f- a solar thermal plant. Is that like a possibility, a practical possibility in the cards and a political demand? Well, well, partly, I mean, one of the things you mentioned, and I, I, I was remiss in not saying it, is, of course, is the workers in the Latrobe Valley, and I was born there myself, so dear to my heart, the workers there, of course, do need a just transition. There That's needs right. to be jobs provided. Now, as to whether, well, what, what type of jobs they are, um, of course, uh, manufacturing of solar equipment is uh, an excellent example. Um, and, you know, I know Earthworker has been trying to push this, but the governments also, when they close down the power stations, they must provide jobs because we must, you know, we must look after the, the communities that are affected by uh, these closures. And also, you know, that helps win their support too for strong climate action. Hmm. So you will let us know when the next broadcast is in advance so we can let the um, listeners know? Yeah, yes, that would be good. You can put it on, on perhaps on your Facebook page and if you, can, if you can promote the next one on your radio, that would be fantastic. Yes. I'll, I'll keep you posted about, about all that. Thanks. Excellent. Are. Now, the other thing before we go is um, are the unions supporting this? I know you talked about the workers. The unions are always key to this, aren't they? Yeah, look, in uh, Victoria, you know, the CFMEU, of course, uh, in the mining uh, area, they do actually have a very good position on, uh, you know, trying to get the just transition. So certainly Latrobe Valley in Victoria, they have been, I I guess, leading this. That's Luke Vandermeulen. In other states, uh, they're not not necessarily as enthusiastic. Um, so uh, I, I know that you know in Newcastle they were um, when Newcastle Council made mo- moves towards divestment they didn't divest from fossil fuels but you know the CFMEU were very angry now that wouldn't happen in Victoria of course because they realise that they do need to transition from coal and they want a fair arrangement fair deal from that so so yeah. I would say the unions differ. Yes. <laughs> and certainly in Victoria we've got, you know, the CFMEU, which is the one mainly affected by coal or work, workers in the coal industry, you know, are supportive of a just transition away from coal. Okay. We, we shall wait for you to let, let us know when the next protest is or maybe some listeners who wish to come can come. And thank yes. you so much for... Thank you. 
Thank you, Okay, thanks. Okay, thanks. Bye. Okay, we are back to announcements. Jacob, you've got a few more announcements there. All right, so in um, response to um, the conservative attacks on the Safe Schools program, there will be a public rally um, uh, next Thursday on the 10th of March, Hands Off Our Safe Schools, um, hosted by Equal Love. It will be 5.30pm at the City Square in Melbourne CBD on Swanson Street. Following that, there will be um, the big um, Palm Sunday Walk for Justice for Refugees will be on the 20th of March Sunday. Um, Melbourne State Library, and um, it will be at 2pm. Also, um, in terms of other events, there will be a public forum, how to stop post-IWD forum, how to stop violence against women, false solutions and real alternatives, hosted by Green Left Weekly and Social Alliance. It will be at Tuesday, March 22nd, 6.30pm, and will feature um, a Bree Carlton, who's a Monash University researcher who specialises on women in prisons, and Karen Fletcher, who's a member of Social Alliance. Okay, so we've got more news from Green Left Weekly this week. Oh, yeah. Actually, maybe we'll just start talking about this. Um, this is the cover story, actually, for the Green Left Weekly, and yep. it's kind of, like, related to um, to the protests at Andrea. But there has been, um, over the weekend of February, the um, 20th of February, the 21st, there was, like, hundreds of sort of environmental protesters made kind of their voices heard in the pillager. Basically, they were in the Laird Date Forest, a group of um, about 30 people blockaded the gates to Whitehaven. Because basically, um, Santos is trying to like build a mine there, and there has been obviously a lot from environmental activists. There's been a lot of community action against it, and the the pressure has been sort of building and building, especially with lots of direct action and lots of different groups of community from environmental activists, farmers, indigenous community, or grouping together to stop this from um, mine from being built. Yeah, that's that's in relation to the coal seam gas, isn't it? Yeah, coal seam gas. There's a lot of protests against that, isn't there? Yeah, which is, which is great. It's good to see the community mobilizing. And there's an interesting article here. There's a protest against mandatory um, identification in Sydney where cyclists are being asked to have um, um, identity cards, you know, when they, when they ride on the, on the streets. So there was a bit of a protest in Sydney about that. Um, no. yeah, which is like... Um in my personal experience, that sounds absolutely ridiculous because I frequently take bike rides without my wallet. If I was in Sydney right now, I would be fine because I usually, when I go bike ride, I aim to I literally just go for a bike ride back and forth. No, I do not intend to use my ID at all. I wonder if they've got an age limit on the ID. <laughs> yeah, because what about <laughs> under 18s? And <laughs> yeah, I yeah. know. It's just yeah. terrible. Yeah, and on the, on, in terms of actually transport in Sydney, actually, there's been um, the government has been talking about increasing the price on Opal cars, which is the equivalent to Mikey, and it's obviously been facing a lot of opposition because public transport in Sydney is already quite expensive as it is, and they intend to increase it even more. Yeah, and moving on to another important topic, which is um, not featured as well as it should be, after the CSIR debacle when they sacked uh, workers who were working on the climate change issue, the scientists, and then we have now a car plant, another car plant closing in, in Adelaide, and there's also another lot of job losses in the James Cook University for the academics um, staff are being made redundant in Kent and Townsville. So the loss of jobs continues, and, and the unemployment rate obviously is going to keep increasing, yep. um, and that's a real problem. And this, this is sort of stuff the main media doesn't cover. 
And I guess that's where uh, Green Love Weekly becomes useful. Mm. And, of course, the Let Them Stay campaign is an ongoing one, yep. which is um, covered again, but the main media doesn't really cover it. Yep. Um, yep. Sorry, oh, yeah. Another thing sort of that the media's kind of been in um, hysterics over is um, the whole sort of safe schools um, program, which has been getting sort of a lot of concerted attacks by um, Corey Renardi. Oh, God. <laughs> Never ends, does he? Yeah. <laughs> well, <talk>. it's um, <laughs> as sort of it's written in Green Left Weekly, it's... Um, the, the sort of attacks have been sort of based on this sort of assumptions that, because um, just to give a bit of background on safe schools, safe schools is a sort of curriculum kind of program to be implemented in schools. Like, um, for example, um, school, schools such as St Kilda Primary School, which is, um, I'll probably briefly mention because it's in my area of where I work, is, um, has implemented the program because they're very pro GBTI rights and but the whole idea is it's sort of to raise awareness of you know the yeah. about being that's okay it's it's an anti-bullying program that's um trying to say you know it's okay to be gay and you yeah. should not be bullied for it and it's okay to be trans it's right. okay to be you are what you are and um yeah. another thing another thing it's sort of that makes distinctive is it also goes into this whole thing about create this sort of acceptance of gender diversity yep. so you, you can be you can you can be a man or you can be biologically male and you can enjoy female things, yep. that kind of thing, not yep. trying to break those sort of gender It's a binary. diverse society, and yep. differences, they, that's what they are, and that's yep. reality. Yep. It's accepting reality and making sure that people don't get you know, mental illness yep. and, and be bullied and yep. so on because of what's happening in the, the way they are treated in schools. Yep. It starts in schools, yep. really, and kids are very good at bullying yep. each other. Now, <laughs> I, I can say that, um, yeah, with um, these sort of conservative fears about it's it's very hypocritical because they're, they're claiming that it's a form of social engineering. And But, oh. of course, what do they say about the fact it's only there's only $8 million going to the Safe Schools Program? What um, it's completely hypocritical when this same government is supporting the school chaplaincy program, which is like yes, it's which is that is manipulation, in my that, opinion. That is which is clear manipulation, and it's also, and it's also, but it's also the the sad thing is also I've been reading the news lately. This um these sort of homophobic um it's um kind of attacks against the safe school program is kind of having an impact in a sense that um there was recently I don't know his name, but a children's author who's, um, who's openly gay um, actually got... He was invited to speak at a school, but he got um, uninvited to oh. speak, so he's not, the school did not want him to speak, like, basically. So he was invited to speak, then uninvited because he was gay, apparently. And so you can kind of tell that this sort of... Um, the government sort of attack, um, homophobic kind of attacks from people like Coromonati's creating this sort of client where this can be um, considered acceptable yeah. and it's very problematic. It puzzles me. People get so hung up on these questions because it's, it's to do with um, sex and they can't handle it. It's a very emotional topic for some people. And I guess the more education adults have, the better for this program. They need to launch a, a huge education campaign yep. about teaching adults to to be tolerant, you know. This is this yep. is how they are born, some of them, and there's a the tendency. What's wrong with that? It's diversity. Yeah. But anyway, who am I to tell people what to do? But that's um, something they need to think about because mm. in, in, in light of what happened in the Catholic um, churches, mm. um, it just seems so hypocritical and, and so um, contradictory in many mm. ways. Well, one of the things, um, again, that... The government sort of trying to. Um, the government has been trying to also the other conservative attack on um, 
on the Safe Schools program is that it's inappropriate to talk to children about these topics, which I think is problematic because it seems to rest on a very conservative notion of childhood. Like, children are much more capable, are very capable of understanding nuanced topics such as, you know, basic sexuality, like, you know. No, they're very, very sharp. Yeah, and like, you know, there's na- literally, there's absolutely nothing wrong with telling children that some people like boy, some boys like boys and some girls like girls, or there's some girls and boys that like both. Like, it's but the, the thing is, there are many kids who come from such families, mixed families. Yeah. You know, and how can you tell those children that their family is not legitimate? Yeah. Oh, that's actually interesting because <coughs> on the Safe Schools program, um, someone made a kind of joke that um, on Facebook, this is the, the most controversial thing in that document, is it has this picture that shows there's all kinds of families. There's single family, single parent families, there's yeah. gay families, there's they're all those. So that was apparently, the. of course, that's very controversial to conservatives because they just want to maintain this sort Put of... Put the lid on it. They just <laughs> want to have this, they, the whole, um, they have um, this view that the only type of family that exists is the nuclear family, the, the mother and the, the son and daughter kind of thing, mother and father, son and daughter. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's that old romantic notion, isn't it, where they uh, lived in denial, go back to the dark ages. But moving on, there's a few more bits and pieces that we could mention. Volkswagen emissions problem spreads in January, ruling um, ma- marking there's a mark sorry in a, in a January ruling marking a turning point in German transport policy. An administrative court in um, was Baden Weisbaden, I hope I pronounced it properly, ordered the regional government of Hess to clean up diesel exhaust fumes by September. Following the deepening Volkswagen diesel emissions testing scandal, the ruling pu- puts pressure on the entire German vehicle industry. And uh, I think this is an interesting one because um, of the climate change issues and the carbon emissions and so mm. on. And um, people who've got Volkswagens, I guess, should take note. Yeah. And the other news is from Spain. Um, there's, um, uh, you know, tumultuous period that Spain is going through because after the elections where no one was no one got the majority in the Spanish elections which was held on the 20th of December last year uh, so Spain keeps uh, not having a government for several months now after left-wing anti-austerity party Podemos cancelled the talks mm-hmm. with the main opposition party the Spanish Socialist Workers Party uh, PSOE it's called uh, tell, uh, it's Podemos walked away from talks when uh, Pasui tried to make a deal with the right-wing Citizens Party, which supports austerity. So given the experiences of um, uh, the Greek people and Mm. Syriza, I think Podemos is being very careful not to create another disaster in Spain Mm. after what uh, happened to Syriza. And now there are actually strikes and protests in Greece as well against um, the so-called left-wing uh, organization that was sold out by um, what, Cyprus yep. uh, in the end. You know? So uh, it, it seems like Podemos is on the right path, and hopefully um, they will come to some sort of agreement because it, this, this saga of not having government keeps um, stretching a little bit. Yep. Uh, now, what other news uh, bits there's are a, there's there? There's a brief sort of, um, this is something that 
why a good thing we have Greenleaf Weekly here is that it's something that you really don't hear, hear about, but apparently this is a, a brief kind of thing, but um, under the National Disability Insurance Scheme, uh, Disability Working Group reported that at least um, 45,000 people with disabilities will remain in unsatisfactory housing, including nursing homes, living with ageing parents, homelesses, and, you know, the key aim of the NDIS is obviously to provide um, people with disabilities um, the the means to have independent living. But, you know, of course, a lot of these people, um, housing experts actually believe that, you know, over 110,000 need appropriate accommodation. So at least about 40% will miss out on the help they need, So, which is very harsh and um, shows some serious problems with um, the the, uh, NDIS, National Disability Insurance Scheme, especially with the recent Liberal um, government cuts towards it. Yeah, and, and that brings to mind another issue, actually, um, that, um, that most of the NDIS um, services are being privatised, they're being outsourced, so yep. it'll be run by private companies, which makes it even more difficult for people trying to make a profit on a service that should be provided, um, you know, without a profit motive behind it. Mm. Okay, now the other couple of articles available, are one is on East Timor and Australia, that, that's bubbling away. There's also an article on West Papua. But it's time for us to leave, yep. um, wind up the um, program.